Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. Hello and welcome to The Agenda. I'm Stephen Cole. Time to save the planet. With more than a million species facing extinction this week, I'll be asking Marco Lambertini, who's Director General of the WWF International, just what can really be done to prevent the destruction of planet Earth. In spite of some recent progress, the Worldwide Fund for Nature is insisting the world remains on course for environmental catastrophe. As forests, coral reefs and wetlands are destroyed and greenhouse gases are still pumped into the atmosphere, more than a million species are now at risk of extinction. So just what, if anything, can really be done to save the planet? Joining me now from Davos is Marco Lambertini, the Director General of WWF International. Marco, what message is the World Wildlife Federation bringing to the World Economic Forum this year? The message is simple and we hope powerful at the same time. We need to stop taking nature for granted. We need to begin to value nature for the incredible services it provides to us every day, mostly for free. And, uh, and yet the evidence of our impact on the natural world has never been greater. We've lost half of the forest, half of the coral reefs, 80% of the wetlands, one million species threatened with extinction, 60% of wildlife populations decline in 40 years. The data are shocking. And what we're beginning to understand is that nature loss is not only a moral or ecological issue. It's an issue affecting our economy, our stability as a society, our health, as we learned painfully from the COVID pandemic. In one word, nature loss is as dangerous as climate change, in fact, contributes to climate change itself. What are the major causes behind all of that? Something that people most often don't connect is the what we eat, what we put on our plate, on our table, and the environmental impact of that food. And so 80% of the deforestation today is driven by agriculture, both in terms of uh, producing feed for animals or expansion of uh, uh, um, fields for crops around the world. Climate change is coming in as a rising threat by altering ecological systems, uh, warming the ocean, uh, provoking wildfires uh, in forests around the whole world. Uh, and then there is unsustainable fishing, unsustainable uh, hunting in many regions of the world. And finally, there is the whole economic sector related to financial investment, which is still both at the public level and private level, generating a lot of subsidies, trillions of dollars per year, supporting the wrong economic development. Still supporting fossil fuels in generating climate change and still supporting unsustainable agriculture, unsustainable fishing, unsustainable and destructive infrastructures. We can and we have to transition to a way to develop, develop economically respecting nature. It is possible. And, uh, and also, it's absolutely necessary if you want to avoid even more problems uh, for ourselves in the future. And according to the WWF, at least a million species are now threatened with extinction because of the reasons you've just given. Which species are you talking about in particular and what can be done to try and save them? Well, first of all, um, when we talk about species and biodiversity, everybody's uh, mind goes to the iconic species. Pandas, <laughs> our logo, uh, tigers, elephants, whales. But actually, biodiversity is the millions and millions of different species that together make our planet 
uh, a living planet and support the productivity of ecosystems like forests, the ocean. So think about biodiversity also as the pollinators, flying insects, not only bees, but also flying other flying insects that are pollinating two-thirds of our crops. Think about the fish in the ocean and in the river that produce food and good nutrition for billions of people. Think about um, uh, the, the biodiversity in the soil, uh, microbes, worms, other uh, small creatures that make soil fertile for our crops and agriculture. So that's also biodiversity, and that's the material contribution of biodiversity to our life. What we need to do, we need to, first of all, protect more of the nature left on the planet. We are now protecting less than 8% in the ocean and less than 15% on land. We need to get to more than that, and there is a target discussed as we speak about 30%, one-third of the planet, ocean and land, under protection. And then we need to sustainably manage the other 70% through agriculture, which is more respectful of the, of the, uh, of the environment, uh, and through other activities like infrastructure, forestry, mining, again, that should reduce dramatically the footprint. All this is possible. It's a question of redirecting uh, public and private investment uh, towards, uh, as we say, nature-positive transition, moving out from the nature-negative economy of today to a nature-positive economy of tomorrow. You talk about nature positive, you've set a target, haven't you, of 2030. Uh, that's a very ambitious target, it's just eight years away. It is a very ambitious target, but it is a necessary target. Science is very clear, if we don't stop the destruction, the loss of ecosystems, if we don't stop the wave of extinction, uh, we're going to really reach a tipping point in many ecosystems. Geographically, for example, the Amazon, or uh, uh, at the global level, for example, coral reefs uh, uh, that are so important for the health of the ocean. It is ambitious, but even the 1.5 degree uh, limit to, to global warming for climate is very ambitious. That ambitious target, carbon neutral net zero emissions by 2050, has disrupted the energy sector, has driven investment away from fossil fuel towards renewable energy. We need to accelerate, but the direction is clear. It's very clearly set by the Paris Agreement. We don't have the same clarity of direction for nature. We need a global goal for nature, nature positive by 2030, that will be able to force, that will be able to disrupt the other economic sectors, today responsible of nature loss, that needs to transition towards more sustainable practices. Uh, and so it is ambitious, but it's necessary. And by the way, it is possible. If it is possible, if political leadership, corporate leadership, and financial flows all align in the same direction. That's why we need a global goal for nature that unites the world, a Paris-style agreement for nature. Well, you say, you say positive uh, climate smart growth, uh, quote, some lovely, lovely sort of numbers. Uh, you're also saying it could deliver $26 trillion in economic benefits by the end of the decade. With so many governments at the moment suffering from downturns in their economies and with a large part of the world thinking about the conflict in Ukraine, how can you persuade governments to come on board with your statistics and your ambitions? So the figures you mentioned actually are coming from a, the Global Economic Commission on uh, uh, the Global Commission on Economic, Economy and Climate. So these are economists uh, looking at the on one hand, the risks of climate change and nature loss, 
uh, the risk for our society. Climate change is already costing hundreds, hundreds of millions of billions per year in terms of damages due to extreme weather events, to infrastructure, to cities, of course, tragic loss of lives as well, crops uh, affected by droughts or floods. The cost is already super significant and will go worse if we don't take action against climate change and against nature loss. And then there is the opportunity side, which is exactly what you just mentioned. For example, in the renewable uh, energy sector, the renewable energy sector is employing far more people than, uh, than the fossil fuel sector. It's a ratio of one to three on average. And so uh, habitat restoration can employ a lot of people with very low skills in many regions of the world to restore degraded land, degraded soil, degraded forest. The uh, whole uh, uh, agriculture, uh, regenerative agriculture, agroecology and agriculture, which is respectful of the environment, also employ more people, generates better options for uh, livelihoods in many regions of the world, particularly developing countries. So there is a, a growing economic case uh, driven by economists that says that our current development model has reached a tipping point. It can only go worse. We are actually affecting our capacity to uh, generate prosperity in the future. And we're already seeing that also with crises like COVID and with, uh, with the war in Ukraine. You know, when there is a crisis, you have two options. You either retreat and look inward and go back to business as usual, uh, or you take the courage and go forward and embrace a new model of development. And that's what we want to see out of this crisis, particularly the pandemic and, uh, and conflicts around the world. Well, the snag is, uh, Marco, leaders promised greater action on climate change and nature loss, as you know, at the climate talks in November. But greenhouse gas emissions are still rising. Nobody seems to be taking any real notice. What makes you think they'll take notice of your warning this time? The reality is that we are at the beginning of a transition. We have just started a transition, probably the deepest, the biggest, most complex transition in humanity's history. A transition from a very established uh, uh, model of development, particularly fueled by uh, uh, fossil fuels, uh, down to a model development that is, is considering the consequences that this is having uh, on the stability of the planet, on which ultimately we all depend. So it is a complex transition, and we are not yet at the point where we are seeing the impact of that transition, positive impact of that transition. But that doesn't mean that the world is not doing anything. But the direction is clear, the movement is in the right direction, we just have to accelerate and not to be tempted to go back for whatever reason, COVID, the war, we need to go ahead, cannot be derailed. Uh, you, you talk about acceleration, but with so much global economic instability, it's very hard to persuade a lot of countries to give up their fossil fuels because you're looking ahead, maybe 10, 15, 20 years, but those countries are still using increasing amounts of coal and fossil fuels, aren't they? Well, the, the, the reality is that uh, the technology and, and the economy, economics around the renewable energy are already making a very compelling case for moving away from fossil fuel. Uh, 
I don't think anybody is in any doubt yeah. there is a compelling case. That's, that's certain. But with the cost of living soaring around the world and economic instability, I want to come back to the economics because that's really what drives governments because they are responsible to their voters. And with so much instability, uh, people, want to, people want to go green. I mean, only a fool would not want to go green. Um, but the simple fact is that governments have to feed their people and they have to have sustainable food supplies and they have to have power for their homes. Absolutely. But the question is how you guarantee that, and not just in the short term, but also in the long term. And some of the actions that we may take now in, in responding wrongly to a pressure or a crisis like the one we are facing today can actually have huge consequences for the years to come. And so this is where political leadership, corporate leadership, and actually consumer choices as well are going to play a key role. Look at the, at the, at the, at the, at the uh, rise of uh, uh, fossil fuel cost uh, price around the world. Uh, this is bringing some uh, local economies, in particular uh, uh, developing uh, uh, economies uh, on, his, on, on their knees right now. And yet, you know, companies like Shell announced in the last three months a tripling of their profits. <laughs> So, you know, um, I, I, I think we need political leadership here. We need political leadership to say, this is not the model that we need to continue to embrace and put in place regulation, caps, incentives, redirection of subsidies. We're still giving to the fossil fuel industry, we meaning the governments of the world, $5.6 trillion of subsidies and help every year. Imagine if those money would actually go in the direction of renewable energy that will accelerate the transition massively. We've already seen some of that happening. We need to see more. Have you any examples of what you would call, or what I would call perhaps, a sound green political leadership that you like the look of, that is showing the way? There are actually, there is a growing uh, uh, number of political leaders that have uh, embraced uh, a green agenda. Uh, hundred uh, uh, countries and the head of states have signed a leader's pledge for nature, for example. They have um, uh, committed uh, to halt and reverse nature loss by 2030. Uh, of course, the Paris Agreement itself is a strong demonstration of, uh, of top leadership. What, however, we need is, is not just the commitment to a top uh, level strategy, plan, global goal. It's also a commitment to implementation. And there is no doubt that uh, we're not going to deliver the Paris commitment. We're not going to be delivering uh, a, nature, uh, a nature positive global goal commitment unless we're going to be able to redirect financial flows in those directions, in a carbon neutral, nature positive direction. This is where political leadership and corporate leadership, uh, but also everybody with our own savings or our own way of spending and investing money needs to really align the financial flows needs to begin to significantly shift. That will make the whole difference. And as I said, we're beginning to see that happening. We're at the beginning of the transition. We need to push and accelerate. And uh, from the European Union, by China itself, uh, many other countries around the world, their leadership is critical, continues to be critical. Marco Lambertini, let's pause there for the moment because we're going to take a break. But coming up afterwards on the agenda, we'll be talking about why food security and sustainable agriculture are both key to a nature-positive future. Welcome back to the agenda. And let's continue our conversation with Marco Lambertini, who's Director General of WWF International. 
Marco, the pandemic, as you and I both know, has had a huge impact, not least in terms of the delays to COP15, the UN Biodiversity Summit in Kunming. A new global biodiversity framework is due to be finally adopted there later this year. Do you think that framework will go far enough? So this is what I referred earlier as the uh, Paris-style agreement for nature, so the Kuming Agreement for Nature that we hope could be remembered as Paris is for nature as Paris is remembered for climate. Uh, we're moving, uh, the pandemic hasn't helped. The pandemic has uh, uh, slowed down the negotiations. Uh, the last round of negotiations was just uh, a couple of months ago in Geneva. There will be another round in Nairobi next month. So we are seeing uh, slow progress. Uh, affected for sure by the big uh, interruption of the negotiation due to the pandemic. We're really hopeful that Nairobi uh, next month, the negotiations there will uh, advance the draft of the global biodiversity framework in the right direction. The the draft we have right now um, uh, has a global mission of nature positive by 2030. We really want that to be confirmed and codified in the final draft for approval. There, are, there, are, there is a strong target on 30% of protection of land and the ocean, which we want also to keep in the final draft. There is a reference to the need to green the economic system, uh, particularly agriculture, and the financial flows that support uh, sustainable practices in future. So there are quite a lot of elements that are already there. They need to be now confirmed and strengthened in Nairobi, ready for approval in Kumeng. We're hopeful. I know that there are some, uh, uh, there is some opposition. Uh, as, as normal, there is a big discussion about how to finance the global biodiversity framework. The developing countries asking support to conserve biodiversity, uh, asking support from the north to conserve biodiversity. So all these discussions are still ongoing. We are not there yet as a final agreement, but we are hopeful and, uh, and we definitely will do our best to grow consensus around a strong agreement. Because if we don't have a strong agreement, we'll be in a, miss, a, a missed opportunity in a lifetime. We don't have time to, uh, to delay our commitment and, uh, and, and taking nature seriously. Uh, we have to embrace a strong plan, a global goal, nature positive in Kumeng. I wonder how much this will help. The EU Commission President, uh, as you know, Ursula von der Leyen, will soon, I I think it's uh, in June, uh, unveil a proposal for a new EU law which is aimed at restoring nature, in quotes. What will that mean? What will it include, that law? So this is part uh, of uh, the broader uh, package, the so-called New Green Deal of the European Union very comprehensive, very ambitious, the moves from climate down to sustainable agriculture, nature conservation, as you say, now nature restoration. It's a fundamental uh, element of the whole plan uh, that, uh, that, that will help us uh, halt and reverse nature loss by 2030 and, and become nature positive as society, as an economy. And it is important and, and it is also exciting because nature has an immense capacity to regenerate itself immense ability to bounce back if we give them a, give nature a chance. Ecosystem in the sea, ecosystems of land, forest, seagrass, coral reefs. If we create the right conditions, we reduce the pressures, K 
can come back. And we have lost so much nature, and with so much nature, so, ma so many services, so many uh, goods and, and, uh, and contribution to, to our society, that actually there is a great opportunity, not just to stop the loss, but also to restore a lot of what we have lost. Uh, and destroyed. And so we welcome that, uh, that, uh, that package on restoration. Of course, we are looking forward to see the details, but we hope and we are confident there will be uh, uh, some strong elements uh, and very positive also signal uh, ahead of the Kunmin meeting. Can I ask you also um, uh, in a bit more detail about uh, an issue we talked about a little earlier in the interview, sustainable agriculture? This is, this is key, uh, and you were, you were first to mention it, about food security. And that's vital about how we grow our food and the emissions as a result of growing food, uh, along with forest protection. Uh, and you insist this could deliver $2 trillion a year. These, these are not small figures. Where, where, how, how can that money be delivered, and where is the need for greatest change? So um, agriculture, uh, as we mentioned briefly earlier, is, uh, is occupying 40% uh, of habitable land. It's, uh, it's uh, generating 30% uh, of uh, CO2 and greenhouse gas emissions. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's using 70% of freshwater human use. It's uh, driving 80% of deforestation and 70% of biodiversity loss of land and much of the overfishing in the ocean. So. <laughs> It's the footprint of, of food production is, is huge. A sustainable agriculture, an agriculture that works with nature, not against nature, is an agriculture that will save huge amount of money in terms of inputs if we just let the nature help us by uh, having uh, natural systems to maintain fertility of the soils instead of uh, chemical inputs, uh, biological tools and uh, uh, to combat the past instead of using chemical tools. Uh, and of course, uh, all this also implies a bigger level of employment, as we said earlier. Uh, large areas of uh, uh, dedicated to agriculture today are degraded. They are not providing the services they should. They are not uh, um, uh, helping with the regulation of water flows. In fact, in many cases, they are depleting uh, water tables and, and water resources, which is also important not just for agriculture itself, for its sustainability, but also for other economic activities that are suffering from the lack of access to water, including many industrial sectors that need a lot of water for, uh, for their production systems. So all this put together, uh, it's really uh, making a compelling economic case has been calculated very, very precisely by teams of economists at the global level of the benefits, tangible economic and employment benefits, that uh, a, a, a natural agriculture can, uh, can generate to us. And is more resilient, an agriculture that is less subject to large uh, uh, episodes of uh, disease and, and crop failures. Uh, all this it's, um, also implies, of course, a different uh, way of consuming food. And so a movement uh, a, a, a towards more plant-based food that is much more efficient, much more healthy, and much less uh, impactful on the environment. You talk about tangible economic benefits. How do you persuade uh, the world's poorest farmers of those tangible economic benefits? Well, look, the, 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 the world's poorest farmers are today the ones that are most affected by climate and nature loss. If you look at the situation now in, in East Africa, 
they are struggling, they are absolutely affected by one of the worst drought in history. Livestock crops, livestock mortality, crops failure at record, historic record high. So in natural agriculture that does not exacerbate climate change, that does not uh, affect the fertility of soil, it's uh, actually in the best interest of the poorest farmers in the world. I was talking uh, here in Davos with an uh, inspirational faith leader, Sadhguru from India, uh, who is uh, very passionate about uh, natural regenerative agriculture, agroagriculture, agroecology, agroforestry, so mixing agricultural uh, plantations with forest uh, to maintain a more ecological balance, have more water in the system, better soil, etc., etc. And he gave me some example from India, real example, where this approach has improved the livelihood of the poorest farmers by tenfold in a few years, uh, in terms of yields and in terms, of course, of, so as I said earlier, of employment opportunities. So there are plenty of examples in the world that are working. We need to replicate those and uh, scale this approach up. And we need the help of governments and business to invest in that direction, away from the business as usual. Marco Lambertini, Director General of WWF International, many thanks for joining us on the agenda. Thank you for inviting me. Coming up on a future agenda, the trillion dollar question, who will be the big winners from the coming of the metaverse? But for now, from me, Stephen Cole, and all the rest of the agenda team here in London, it's goodbye.